Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Herman. We have a very interesting guest on, and me and Dan were really excited to have him on. Um, he's an astronomer, and he's an excellent, excellent science communicator. Uh, right now, he's working in Swinburne University, and uh, I'd like to introduce Professor Alan Duffy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so us. much for being here, oh, mate. Th um, thank you so much for having me. And it's uh, it's awesome to have you here. So. I'd like to start with a very open-ended question. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, well, if I were you, if I were sitting in my free time, if you have any, um, what, what are the theories, what are the questions you think about and what do you, what do you ponder on? Well, I mean, the first thing as a father of two young kids is why am I not hearing screams, crying, you know, laughter, what's happened, <laughs> what's happened to my kids? Why have I got any free time at all? Uh, but that, assuming somehow that that is free time that's expected. Um, Look, it's, there's a few questions I have. Uh, there's the classic fundamental question of, you know, are we alone? And I don't think I would be alone, in, hopefully in this room, mm -hmm. about wondering that, you know, at the night sky, you look up, you see those stars. And, and I think all of us have been captivated by that moment as something looking back. Um, you know, it just so happens I'm in a field where I have a, something of a chance to try to answer that, or at least my colleagues. The uh, questions around our drive in uh, science and technology and this sense of advancements that are, uh, on the one hand, they're going, it feels increasingly quickly, that it feels like we are in this exponential growth phase, particularly around AI, and that is exhilarating, but it's alarming at the same time. My fear is maybe we're not going fast enough. We have wow. existential crises everywhere you look. Uh, and it's only through more science and technology, not less, that we're going to resolve them. So I, I genuinely have these moments where I, I'm excited about the pace and I'm fearful that it's not enough hmm. at the same time as being concerned about the ramifications even even now. I mean, just, just a few days ago, I was hosting the uh, uh, panel on AI. It was, it was for the Australia Chamber uh, Australian-American Chamber of Commerce. There was, you know, the CTO of Microsoft, Sarah Carney's there, you know, hearing from the people who are changing the world mm -hmm. and being in awe of the scale of what has already happened and how much more there is to come. Um, so, you know, I think about all those, those kinds of things, um, everything from those foundational questions, you know, are we alone to... Concerns for the future, like any other person, I think, on this planet right mm. now. Yeah. When you say it's not enough, the growth is not enough, what do you mean by that? So we have challenges uh, facing us right now. I mean, you know, there's the climate crisis. We have issues of um, uh, uh, microbial uh, um, resistance to antibiotics and every other kinds of treatments now that we're beginning to, to field. We have any numbers of energy and equity in that energy and, and other resource sharing challenges. And one thing that science and technology does allow you to do is to overcome those issues. Mm. It's not a panacea. It's not on its own. You know, uh, you know, I could in the lab invent some kind of, of, you know, cheap fusion power, for example. It still needs to be rolled out. You still need governments to take it. You still need the fossil fuel companies to not be sabotaging you left, right, and center as you roll it out. So you have a lot of barriers, so it's not enough, 
but it is the first step and required step. So I think that the more science and technology we have, the better chance we will to combat all of these issues. But what worries me is that there are so many challenges facing us that this century, it does feel like, is the century when we will make uh, either we will we will achieve our hopes and visions of a, of a more just and 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 um, more equitable and healthier, wealthier world for all, and indeed going beyond. And I think that's actually a reasonable chance at this point. If we don't stuff ourselves up right now for this century, I think we will be able to go to the moon and beyond and Mars. But those kinds of challenges are seeming on their own, any one issue would seem to be hard, almost inconceivably hard in the scale of the challenge. They're all coming together at the same time. And that, that does worry me a little bit. And that's where my hope is more science technology will give us a better chance to handle all of the challenges facing us. And that's the problem. We actually do need to solve them all. We can't just resolve climate change, but we have, you know, ocean acidification or, you know, soil erosions. These are issues that have to be fixed. With AI coming in, and and of course you're working with supercomputers, and there's there's a realm of quantum computing that's coming mm-hmm. in. Do you think those technologies would help us figure those issues out? Look, quantum computing has a definite potential. We've got a, um, it, it's it's very specialized. So it's not it's not that you have a quantum computer and it's like your supercomputer. And you know, just for anyone who's listening, a supercomputer is a hundred thousand processors, you know, so you might have a few sitting in your laptop. So 100,000 of these, racks and racks and racks and racks of them, all humming. The energy, the noise, the feeling is incredible. Mostly what you experience, though, is just the aircon running uh, in this deafening fashion. You need ear, ear protection if you go in these rooms. I mean, it really is that loud. And you are getting this vibration through your body, and that is the scale of the challenge to cool down that many computers, computers going less, right? And then you think, oh, yeah, that's my simulation running on that, that's right. <laughs> um, so, the, the, you know, it's a nice moment. But the, the, it's not that quantum computer is just a souped-up version of a supercomputer. It, in, it's, at the same time, vastly more powerful, but also very much more specialized and limited in the domains in which it will actually work. So, um, but, you know, quantum computer, yeah, it's great, fine. Um, but in terms of what's <laughs> going to solve it, uh, I actually have a lot more confidence in our uh, the fact that we've got phenomenal engineers working on green steel, right? Making steel, which we all need for you know construction. There are billions of homes that will need to be made, uh, you know, for everyone to live in in the kind of Western style of of which I think is their right to have a good home. Um, but we'll have to take the carbon out of the process of making that steel. What gives me confidence is now the major players in iron ore and steel are trying to solve this. And they're doing this from foundational um, metallurgical principles. They're running computer simulations. They're just getting out into the the factories, you know, into these, these ginormous plants and doing great work. So that's the thing that helps me have confidence and, and hope. It's the fact that it's moving more into the engineering realm than it is um, hoping for a breakthrough technology. I'm much more um, optimistic where I see things that are have been validated, foundational kind of learnings have been have been achieved, and now it's about scaling up the solution. 
Because then that's just an engineering problem. And engineers are brilliant. Absolutely. In the beginning, what you said that you're also, uh, it fears, you know, you're feared about the technology advancements as well. What mm -hmm. what fears you? Uh, I think AI is certainly of concern. And that was the issue the panel uh, I was hosting raised in particular. And it did not help me in any way feel more sanguine about the, the process. Um, but my, my bigger concern is actually, uh, and there are you know, many issues, you know, cyber, et cetera. Um, it's just, I don't think we're as a society ready yet for the level of misinformation we're about to experience. The quality, if that's the right term for this concept, but those deep fakes and other kinds of um, image or voice that are now indistinguishable or near indistinguishable, that is just a nightmare. I mean, that, that there's, I, yeah. I, I actually struggle to think of when that would actually be helpful, quite frankly, in a net positive. I just, I can't conceive of a situation. So instead we just have just dumped this nightmare for democracy into the world and made it trivially easy for every psycho to have a play with that. So that's great. So that worries me. So I, the, the things that worry me are more around those societal impacts and our inability to handle misinformation, disinformation, already, and I don't think COVID was a great experience mm -hmm. in the world. I don't think we, we you know, showed our, our ourselves able to handle that level of um, disinformation. I mean, imagine five years from now where we were going to be in that weaponization of that level of AI. Um, it worries me. I just don't think we're even close to conceiving of how hard that will be for people just to understand what is actually happening. Yes. Do you, do you think there's a way to regulate artificial intelligence? Well, there is. Um, I mean, there are many, many proposals. The EU is leading the charge in this. Um, I'm very fortunate to, to know uh, Joanne Bryson. She's a, a professor at the Hertie School in, in Germany, and, and she's actually one of the, the, the leaders in this field. And it is about making sure that companies don't weasel out of liability or culpability. I mean, they, you know, it's like, oh, it's AI. We don't know how it works. Yeah. Like, no, I don't, it's not strictly <laughs> true. Um, you're happy to sell it. That comes with a product yes. warning or liabilities. Yeah. And it's been rolled out to the public like, here you go, have a play around with it. And <laughs> yeah. while most people who are using it are playing around with it and everyone's different, AI is constantly learning from that experience. Mm -hmm. Imagine, well, we're at 3.5, which is free. Well, four is kind of paid. Imagine mm -hmm. what we'll do at five and six. Yeah. Look, so yeah, obviously, chat, I don't know how familiar your audience is, but yes, the chat GPT versions. Um, look, I think the idea is we can be um, optimistic that from a regulatory environment, uh, you know, we will figure out a way to regulate to a certain degree. And I think um, whether it's from the EU or, or you know, whatever uh, governing body, one thing governments do like to do is regulate. So I think eventually, sooner or later, they, they will get there. And in particular, because the... Um, legislators are responding to the public and the public is incredibly aware of this. I mean, ChatGPT really was the overnight, mm. albeit 40 years in the making, mm. success. Um, this this has been a, a revolutionary moment and we will have, I think, changes as a result of that. But for me, um, the concern was not, um, you know, can we, can we regulate it? And the fact that companies rolled it out so quickly... That's the bit that surprised me. I thought we would have really closed tests. You know, we, we, we saw what happened with social media, the unintended consequences of that. 
surely with an even more powerful capability, we're not going to do the same thing. I was like, bang, it's there. We just incorporated AI into every other platform you've used. You're like, oh, oh, wow. Okay, I guess I guess we just tried this experiment all over again. I don't think those companies were rolling these out do actually think and sit sit and think about what we're just talking about. I think they're just rolling it out for the sake of it. Well, there's a fear. I, I look at, I mean, again, to be fair, a, a lot of the companies, certainly the individuals I speak to, I'm very fortunate. I do, I do um, for whatever reason, get to call people and they answer. Um, so I do get to chat to people uh, at these levels, senior levels. They do worry about this stuff, but the problem is incentives. Mm. The incentive structure is not to slow down your development and adoption of AI. It is quite the opposite. You cannot afford to be behind. Right. And we now have these global players all, um, you know, advancing in this incredibly competitive environment. And money is flowing to those companies that are the quickest innovators and adopters. And that's just unless you get the incentive structure right, unless you somehow make a virtue and a profitable virtue of responsible AI, uh, this is just an inevitability. I think Elon Musk came out with the truth AI, which was kind of funny to me. I said, you know what? If he comes with truth AI, I would trust him. Would you? Not anymore. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. I, was a, I loved what uh, Elon Musk had done with uh, Tesla, with uh, SpaceX. So he was at... Um, in 2017, the IAC, the International uh, uh, Aeronautical Congress or Astronautical Congress, it's it's the the, the world's event for space, uh, and it was hosted in Adelaide, first time in in Australia in 2017. Uh, and I was there with a film crew. I think we were doing something for Catalyst. And some, I think it was about the moon. Gosh, it's terrible. I can't even remember. It's not that long ago. Um, but yeah, we had, we had, you know, there's Elon Musk at the front. It was so fun. I'll never forget the director going, we're going to doorstop him. And I was like, we're going to get murdered. Have you seen his bodyguards? <laughs> so we tried, we tried to rush Elon Musk. You know, we did a filming um, during his event and he was sort of talking about the um, reusable rockets, the ability for SpaceX rockets to land themselves and then to be essentially you know, reused, drastically reducing the cost to, to access space, um, much as... You can afford air travel, um, or at least you know, it, you know, a, a few times a year, perhaps, if you're able to reuse the plane. In other words, it's not scrapped when it reaches London, mm. right? which yeah. is currently right. you know, what, what rockets do, <laughs> yeah. um, except for SpaceX, which reuses it, so it refuels the rocket and sends it back. Um, and I remember being incredibly um, impressed um, that you know the vision, the articulation, very much an engineer's approach to to solving problems. And then a few years ago, he just went, he went so weird. And it was, and it's social media. I mean, he's, he's genuine Twitter or X as it's grossly (laughs) called. It, he's got a problem. I mean, the problem is he's also on the hook, I think for like $40 billion or whatever, you know, he, he managed to convince people to give him to, to buy it over, but uh, take it over. But the idea that someone that brilliant with so much to give back to the world in terms of developing new technologies, implementing, you know, transformative capabilities like the electrification of transport, and then spends his time not just on Twitter, but like destroying it, making somehow making Twitter even worse as a cesspit. Mm. 
no, I, so I don't think I'll trust him right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, to, to switch from that topic, I had a bunch of interesting questions that could sort of lead us into another prayer. Do you think life can be explained by physics? And this is like sort of like a philosophical question. Mm -hmm. Do you think life can be explained by physics? I do, uh, but that's not to say that we will be able to. Ah. So fundamentally, uh, the world that we experience, so the fact that gravity exists or what we perceive as gravity, the fact that the um, sensations in my body right now are, you know, a chemical chain, as it were, of, of potentials, and that's how the signal is transmitting, all of that physics. The fact that I am experiencing this moment, it, you know, what it means to be me right now in this room, there's the red light, you know, mm -hmm. I can see the, what is the qualia, what is the redness of that red, that's a little harder, right? In fact, it's, sure. it's known as, it is a, a tough question. Um, and I think it's one of the hard questions. So I think that that's, I have no reason to suspect that that experience of, um, awareness um, of, of consciousness is not a part of the physics world. I don't think it's coming in from some spooky, you know, ethereal plane that's beyond physics. But that's not to say that you can look in the equations, physics equations, and you will get this emergent phenomenon of course. Um, uh, as that straightforwardly. So, I, you know, it, it may just be that we will never get to understand. And in fact, I would argue we are far more likely... I, and well, that's a big clue. I would not be surprised were we to be able to explain any of the current huge problems in 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 physics. The fact there's anything here at all, the nature of the Big Bang, uh, the nature of dark matter as one of my actual fields of research. You know, dark energy, three quarters of the universe. What, what on earth is that? All of those things I would imagine are solved before we understand consciousness. That would not surprise me at all. You touched on black matter. I, I was Dark just matter. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry, dark matter. My bad. Um, why is it called dark matter? Like, why dark? What's... So we have a, um, a, a, a Swiss astronomer to thank for this. So this is uh, Fritz Ficke, and he saw that there were uh, a clusters of galaxies that were whizzing around each other. Mm. pulled by their, or at least um, kept bound to, uh, uh, to move around each other by some you know, amount of gravity. So the gravity was holding on to these ginormous galaxies that were spinning around one another. And he did the sums. And there was more gravity required to hold on to these fast-moving galaxies than he could account for from all of the stuff that he could see. So he said, well... Uh, I can see, you know, there's gravity required. That means it's, there's matter, materi, um, in, in German. And then I can't see it. Mm -hmm. So it's dark. Donker. So he said donker materi, dark materi. And that wow. was it. Dark matter. Your research is looking for dark matter. Mm -hmm. What happens if you find it? <laughs> I get to retire, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yep, I'm done. That's done, it. done. Um, sadly, I suspect it won't be quite that that unequivocal an answer. Um, discoveries are weird, right? So very rarely is it a case that there is this 
clear, unequivocal signal. Usually it's a case of we built the experiment a little bit bigger, a little bit better, and now we're getting a hint. We're getting a teasing out of a signal. Like, oh, there's a little, um, uh, there's a, a project known as, as Sabre led by uh, Elisabetta Barbario, and, and that is based around crystals that will flash when struck by anything, including, we hope, dark matter. So what you would see is, you know, a certain number of flashes in a day, you know, literal glows from the crystal. You know, and is it, is it, was it five? And then the next day was six, and then there's like four, and then it goes on. And you're trying to see a, a slow pattern build up over the course of days, and maybe you start to see it increasing a certain time of the year. Um, and then later on, six months later, it's decreasing. And there's this kind of tentative signal that you would begin to see emerge. That's the kind of signal we're looking for. But all the while, you're just counting, oh, it's five today, and then maybe eight tomorrow. And in other words, you're going to have, in a statistical sense, confidence that you've got the answer, but it's going to slowly emerge. So over the course of years, this signal repeats and repeats and repeats. And by the time you've seen it for a third time, then you're getting very confident. You've seen something real. So in other words, discoveries are not the eureka, oh, I saw it, we're done kind of moment. It's much more of a slow build. Now that, I mean, there are exceptions to that, as with all good stories. But the point of this one is it's a search that the world has been involved in 50 years now of of just ever increasingly large, gigantic detectors. Um, it's a global endeavor, a global hunt. And one team has claimed a detection as not without some controversy. And that's what, in fact, the Sabre experiment is designed directly to test and I suspect to rule out. But if you were to get the signal, that's the start oh. of a lot of hard work. Because now you have to understand what the dark matter you've found it right you've 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 got this signal well now we need to build even more specialized detectors to look in greater detail for that so there's a, an analogy where we have um uh, uh if if i know you guys you know obviously speaking with, with photographers if you have a broad um so-called broadband, or if you've got a, a very wide filter, your, your camera is sensitive to a huge range of colors. Dynamic range. Huge dynamic range. Um, and that's great. If you don't know the color that you're supposed to be looking for, the signal, and, and, and you know, in the table there's this red light, let's just say you don't know beforehand what color it is, right? So you're going to build the biggest, widest possible um, sensitivity to all of those frequencies, all those wavelengths of light, colors of light. Now, the moment you get oh, look, I could see it was strong, most strongly glowing in the red filter. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to change your camera True. to now have it hone in on that color in that same dynamic range is going to just be spread out across just a narrow frequency. So what we would do with the dark matter detector is the moment you get the signal, you go, great, let's build a new one that's even more focused on where that signal was discovered and then start to learn more about it. And the reason we care about this is because in particle physics, at least, um, we've kind of hit a bit of a an impasse with the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle, in 2012, um, announced here in Melbourne, in fact. As the World uh, um, Particle Physics Conference was on, there was a live stream from the team at CERN to all the physicists who would travel down under to be updated about the result that was that was being presented in the it's kind of, it was one of these weird moments. So all the TV cameras were in the conference looking at our mm -hmm. faces as we looked at the 
presentation screen <laughs> from CERN and they showed this little graph and it was a little bump and it was like, yes. <laughs> and the camera's clearly desperate for someone to go and just say, what, what's the bump? Like, why, do, why should we be excited? About this bump? Um, but at that moment, that was the last of the um, jigsaw pieces that, that builds out what is called the standard model. Uh, the problem is it doesn't explain uh, gravity. It doesn't explain dark matter. In fact, there's a lot of things about our world that it doesn't explain. But we've got so many potential ways to go, you know, new particles, new kinds of mechanisms. All, every theorist in particle physics worth their salt will come up with a candidate for the dark matter just in case. Because if by sheer chance they're right, that's what's going to, well, they get a Nobel Prize, right? And it took them, you know, a year to think of it. That's a good investment. Just just have a crack. Think of a new particle. And it is motivated a little more strongly than that, but not, but not too much more strongly. And this is where we are at. We have thousands, thousands of possible answers for what the dark matter could be and these other mysteries. The moment someone confirms what it is, then everything else falls by the wayside. Everyone, the entire physics community focuses then. And then we will see this rapid development once more. But for now, we're stumbling in the dark. We're all moving in every direction. We need a beacon. And the dark matter is the beacon right. that would direct all of our attention to. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's another one that I wrote. That Could we, or all, our galaxy, be inside a black hole? Why did you think that? <clears throat> well, I was watching a documentary on Netflix on black holes. Mm -hmm. and, you know, well, black holes, well, it has such strong gra gravity that nothing can escape, even light. Mm -hmm. Well, where, where is it all going? Mm -hmm. Could that be a portal to somewhere? Mm -hmm. And if it is, then are we inside it? Could we be inside it? Um, just just a curious question. Yeah, yeah. No, no. What I'm asking is because it's, it's, it's a, a good idea and it's one that Stephen Hawking had. So Webs. you're in good company there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so this is, uh, uh, I think from memory, it was um, bl uh, Black Holes and Baby Universe, I want to say is the book. And in it, um, Hawking notes a, a couple of similarities between black holes and our universe. The first is that a black hole uh, has has an edge. So that's the boundary you mentioned, the event horizon. If you're within it, you can't get out, not even light. That's the that's why it's black. Um, it's not black the color, it's black as in the complete absence of light as space and time as, as we know it is, is crushed inexorably at that point into a point of infinite density known as the singularity and, and you know, physics as we understand it breaks down. So yeah, it's not black the color, that's basically what I'm saying. Um, but this boundary, it's kind of interesting because we look out to the universe and we have a, um, a, a boundary of sorts as well. It's our observable horizon. It's literally how far can the universe um, uh, uh, stretches that the light from it can make it to our eyes as it were today. And if you wait, an ex you know, if you wait a year, you're going to see an extra light year into the universe. Um, yeah, okay. That, well, as rel relatively, I'm just thinking there's a dark energy thing, but we'll forget that. So so there's a boundary, right? And it's not a wall. Like if you were to travel through the universe, you're not going to hit an edge of the universe, right? But but visually speaking, there is this kind of observable boundary. So he started to make these connections between um, 
the universe and and the black hole, the fact that there appears to be a singularity, that point of infinite density that is at the center of black hole, stuff gets crushed, gravity gets stronger, gets crushed even more, gravity gets stronger, gets crushed even more, and you get this snowball runaway effect where this, say, a star at the end of its life has started to crush together under its own gravity, um, reaches a density where not even light can escape that gravity now. That's Then that's the black um, hole, as it were, is then defined. But inside, the runaway collapse continues and you get ever denser until this singularity, quite, quite literally nothing props it up anymore and all of that stuff gets crushed together. Well, we had a singularity. It's just in our past. We call it the, the Big, Big Bang. Bang. So he's saying, well, that's interesting. So there's a horizon, there's a boundary, and there's a singularity. Well, what if they are the same? And one of his points was, we don't understand the point of the singularity, but he makes a reasonably compelling argument, and it's a classic Hawking argument, which is, you know, just gigantic leaps of intuition and let someone else figure out the details later. I don't have time. You know, he was that, I mean, literally he felt that pressing sense of mortality. So his his leaps were gigantic, um, almost always paid off. Sometimes he made mistakes. Um, but more often than not, he was, his intuition was right. And you know, 10 years of mathematics later, someone else goes, oh, yeah, he was correct. Um, so he's, he made the point that maybe that singularity, as the black hole's collapsing, um, it's now cut off from our universe. That's the black bit. And it keeps collapsing. And at that certain point, you get, it reaches that point of infinite density or nearly infinite density. Something happens, and it's probably to do with quantum gravity, um, so a level of understanding the universe beyond what we have right now, and it bounces. So in other words, it doesn't keep collapsing, but instead it begins a big bang. So within that black hole, a little baby universe is formed and it's experiencing its own expansion and evolution. Wow. So you could have galaxy, everything else. Um, so he made this really quite elegant argument and uh, I'm a fan of it because he tried to make a prediction. And he used evolution for it, which I just have to adore anyone who's like mixing, matching disciplines. And his understanding was, or his, his um, uh, um, um, thought experiment was, you, within that baby universe, right, you can have slightly different laws of physics. And and this is as far as we understand it true. There's right. nothing sacrosanct about the the you know mass of the electron to the proton. There are fundamental constants, alpha, other things. Uh, my colleague Michael Murphy is actually investigating in the universe. Are they varying? So you know the constants we take for granted, fundamental constants, which I'm sure would roll off everyone's tongue in this room right now. So you know I won't quiz anyone on them. But the point is, they might vary, and if they vary, then sometimes you would be. Um, unable to form stars, right? So let's imagine there's a baby universe inside a black hole and the constants have just changed just a little bit, again, as, as is entirely uh, uh, felt possible. But in that baby universe, the constants have varied so much that they can't form stars. And because they can't form stars, there's no way to form the black holes from their collapse. And that baby universe no longer has baby universes of its own. Hmm. Well, let's imagine another baby universe where the constants are even better for forming stars. So now we have even more stars than we experience in our own universe. So that baby universe is going to have tremendous numbers of stars and hence black holes, which will all vary a little bit, their constants, but, you know, 
um, will uh, more often than not have, you know, be even more productive in the sense of forming stars in their own baby universes. So in other words, you get this, this kind of evolutionary model where universes within these forming black holes tweak the constants, just again, sheer chance from what they, you know, the universe behind before or the higher up, if you want to think of it that way, and end up producing more black holes. And they in turn produce even more black holes. And the universes that don't produce black holes, well, they don't propagate. So in other words, you end up with a situation where the laws of physics, everything else being equal, as we look out around us right now, and the constants should happen to be as productive as possible in forming black holes because there's squillions more of these baby universes formed where there are black holes being formed. And we don't know which of those were in those universes, so we should be in the one that's most common. In other words, the one that has the most chance of forming black holes. And we look around and that's what we've got. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of mind that Hawking had, and that's why I was interested in where you asked that question. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, um, so the possibilities could be infinite then. Uh, eventually you repeat. So um, if you've got a universe that extends forever, and again, there's as far as we can see, there is no end. So it would continue forever. By sheer chance, you would get a star. Uh, let's go even bigger. Sorry. You would get a galaxy had a very similar history to our own Milky Way. And it has the small and large Magellanic clouds going around. And you think, oh, gee, that looks, that's, oh, that's, that's a really similar looking galaxy. And you think, okay, that's good. And there's a few. We're not, we're not super rare, the Milky Way. If you travel instead of, say, you know, a billion light years, instead you travel a hundred billion light years. So now you, it's, this, this would literally be past the observable extent of the universe as, as we can currently see it. So a vast, vast distance. But let's imagine you do. I don't know what you're watching in terms of Netflix to get you through that. But anyways, this travel time is obviously, you know, this is the fun of the thought experiment. Um, you have traveled for so long that you are seeing galaxies not just looked quite similar to the Milky Way, but just by sheer chance had exactly the same history as the Milky Way. And then you go in and zoom in, you say, well, wow, there's a star with the exact chemical makeup of our sun. That's crazy. And you zoom in, you go, wow, look at the planets around that. In other words, by sheer chance, everything will repeat. But you have to go, the sheer chance gets very, very small once you start getting more selective about how specifically identical to what we would term our own experiences. You want to replicate. Replicate. So, you know, it's one thing to have a Milky Way galaxy. There's plenty of them. Our sun is not super rare, uh, but you're talking now about an exact solar system like ours, an exact Earth like ours, and you zoom and zoom in. Um, it was a number like, oh, and Max Tegmark worked this out. Oh, I did a whole talk on this. That's so annoying. Because um, there's many different kinds of infinities, but one of them his idea was you could just keep going far enough and everything repeats. Um, and I think it was something like 10 to the power of, I'll say like 80 light years. So 10 billion, 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 
billion, billion. <laughs> I hope everyone else keeping Eight up with it. Billion. billion, 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 and probably another couple of billions light years travel before by sheer chance you would run across yourself. Literally, mm-hmm. and there's nothing spooky. It's not sliding doors kind of thing. It is just by sheer chance. <laughs> There's a galaxy that looks exactly like us, a sun that looks exactly like ours, a planet like exactly like ours, and a whole sequence of life exactly like ours. And that brings me to another great question, which was that, is there inherent order in nature or is it just all randomness? Ooh. Um, there does appear to be um, order in the sense that there's far more ways for the atoms in this room to exist than in the table right now, the microphone right now. Sorry, go back. Go back a little bit. <laughs> well, in, in the sense that if you were to go out and you you would literally look at the world around us, mm-hmm. um, the fact that there are atoms in this table, you know, there's, there's carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, whatever, and a lot of hydrogen in there. Um, there are vastly more places, you know, in, in, in our planet, in the solar system, for those atoms to be then right here, right now in this table. So you're asking, well, how in all the possible combinations of places for those atoms to be, being in a structured, you know, table or the building or us is, in, is unbelievably unlikely, Right. And that's because it's not chance. It's because it's grown up as a tree and we've cut that down. Well, why is it grown up in a tree? Well, because it turns out there's evolutionary pressure to grow taller tree trunks, to get more sunlight. Think, oh, that's interesting. Well, how's that information propagated? It's like, oh, well, it's, it's got the genetic makeup. So you could go back. So there isn't, it's not um, chaos and chance. There's a huge amount of structure and order in the world. And how that order propagates itself is at least for for a lot of what we're aware of through genetics. And you think, well, that's kind of interesting. So how does genetics work? And you think, well, it's it's kind of just chemical bonds. And you think, okay, that's interesting. Um, Well, why does that have a certain structure? And it's because it's energetically favorable for certain chemicals to bond um, versus others to, to fly off. So foundationally, it's chemistry or rather physics, if you want to go down all the way. The fact, though, that all of those chemical bonds and the way they might, you know, all the different kinds of chemicals that could arise or the different connections those atoms could make have ended up looking as structured and ordered as they do, that is not chance. There is a guiding emergent um, process that that governs the um, formation of structure as we know it, and that's that's good because we can have sanity in this world and, and understand how engineering works and can build buildings. And in other words, there are, there are yes, it's all physics fundamentally, but there are a lot of um, structures and processes and um, outcomes from that chance, which found, you know, if you zoom in enough to the absolute, you know, atomic, subatomic realm, yes, it's pure probability. It is quantum mechanics. It's all spooky, all that. We can get into that in a little bit. But but after a while, you zoom out enough and there is a reason why things 
form the way they do or work the way they do and that is mechanics and engineering and in other words you get this emergent description of the universe that gives you order no one there's no ghostly hand though that's reaching into our universe from some outside realm and guiding the evolution of things or guiding the fact that the table still stays together we don't need that i mean we can understand all of these principles but the simple fact that there are so many more ways for the universe to look different than the way it does today tells you that there must be some kind of restriction on all those possibilities um and as far as we can tell evolution is a great explanation for that wow so it's order and randomness hand in hand you need a bit of randomness you really do um we in our genetic evolution the fact that you get um changes to the genes uh, mutations uh, in part from radiation from space in fact it's, it's actually i'll maybe come back to that if i can remember that but it's quite interesting but the idea is if you have a mutation and then that offspring is better um uh, uh able to to propagate in the world it finds itself then those mutations are going to do well and they're going to flourish and that's how evolution works and those who are less fit you know don't propagate as much um and that works right down to the chemical level i mean this is genes are no you know it is just pure chemistry in that sense so chemical reactions if you will will outweigh other types if they are more you know because of just whatever the temperature the salinity of the environment they find themselves in they're just more reactive you're going to have more of those chemical products formed. So that's we think a kind of analogous to what might be happening, you know, at a certain point it switches into genes and it all gets very messy well outside of my field. But um the point of that you need the randomness, you need a certain amount of mutations. You can't have too much, right? Because then your offspring are it's not just one you know, small change but rather horrible numbers of large, you know, and that's a disaster. Mm. Um, so the idea is a little bit of random is good, too much would be bad. And there's a ordered structure that would give you that kind of guiding um, bounds of then, you know, what ends up being successful or not. Um, the, the cosmic ray thing is, I want to turn back to, is really fun though, because we have always, at least I personally have always assumed, you know, radiation is bad, right? I mean, fundamentally, if you could do without it, you probably would. Um, big fan of, you know, Uh, nuclear science by the way but you know just just generically i would have guessed radiation's bad well there is a place where there's very limited amounts of radiation and it's at the bottom of these um underground laboratories and and the stall gold mine hosts the stall underground physics laboratory which i'm a part uh there is a version of this in uh, the uk in bulby uh and it's a similar sort of depth about a kilometer a kilometer half from memory underground and it has all of this rock between the lab and the radiation from space so it's blocking all of it out almost all of it out so you have an environment where you're able to exist with almost no radiation and the researchers medical scientists came down with cell cultures and started to grow the cells to see what would happen to cells without the radiation, radiation. and the thinking is then we'll understand better how cells um can cope with radiation and then then you know and radiation is a cause of cancer so we really do want to understand how the how we could maybe help the cells cope with, with radiation better the astounding thing was that the cells did not develop 
correctly at all. In the absence of radiation, they were a mess. Hmm. Not, it's not just that our bodies have evolved to cope with radiation. We need radiation to function. That's how intertwined, how good a fit we are for our environment after, you know, billions of years of evolution. So this idea of radiation always being bad, and you know, is, is absolutely not the case. Um, but again, just like randomness, a little bit is fine, is needed, in fact, as these pr- tests have shown, too much, definitely bad. Wow. It's like chocolate. <laughs> too much chocolate. <laughs> oh, too yeah. much chocolate is never bad. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm a dairy milk man. I will, I will hoover a kilo bar of dairy Classic. milk. No worries. Everyone loves it. Jeez, yeah. Looking for a life beyond Earth. Mm. What did you find? <laughs> uh so there's no, no, um, yeah, no, no spoilers, but uh, no, we haven't, haven't found anything. Um, there are so many interesting uh, missions underway right now uh, to, to search for this life. We have the Breakthrough Listen uh, project. Uh, uh, Matthew Bales is the Australian rep on this. Swinburne supercomputer is, is um, sifting through the data from telescopes that include Parks radio telescope, the DISH. Um, for signals from alien, whatever, TV, radio. Um, it's completely agnostic. I mean, you're looking for something that looks non-natural. So it's it's artificial, it's not random. Non-human. Non-human, but just, just you know, we couldn't, we can't conceive of, well, it's, it's like the detector experiment again. Mm. You zoom out as best you can. You are just agnostic as to what it might look like. You just know it when you see it. Right. So in other words, there's going to be some structure in the message or signal that uh, very likely AI will, our AI will detect if it's present. And it stands out above all just the random cacophony of space in, in terms of the you know radio signals that get sent. And that is a very 21st century kind of way to, to search where you are just taking enormous quantities of data, throwing it at AI and asking, see, you know, is there a pattern? Can you see anything in there unexpected? And just hope you've coded the AI sufficiently, you know, general enough that you don't miss it. That's actually right now the search. There, there are a billion stars being listened into. It's been running for several years. It's got a couple more years to go. At the same time, and this is a program no, more generally known as uh, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, so that's us waiting for aliens to be smart enough to build communications equipment and careless enough for us to be able to hear it, that it leaks out into the, to the, um, the universe. The JWST, the successor to Hubble, has the ability to spot the chemicals in the atmosphere of alien worlds. And the idea is that if you get a, 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 an exoplanet, so a planet around another star, if it passes between us and the star, it will block the light of the star, right? Literally, it's, it's an eclipse. So it, it, it's an eclipse of about 1%. I mean, the planet's tiny relative to the star it goes around, so it's only blocking a little bit of the light, but still, you know, very, very much easily detectable. Except there's a little bit of the starlight, which won't be hitting the planet, and hence, you know, we get a little shadow, but rather just a little bit to the side would hit the air of the alien world and go through the air and travel towards us. 
and we can see what that starlight looks like as it's gone through the alien atmosphere versus, you know, a couple of hours later when it's passed and then we're just seeing it uneclipsed. Um, and we do the difference and now we get the chemical signature imprint of the alien atmosphere, literal chemical composition of this alien world's air imprinted on its host star's light. And this sounds like a really difficult concept, except we see it every morning and evening. Mm. That is what the sunrise and sunset is for us. It is our sun's light through half of the world's atmosphere, because then it continues mm. behind us, right? And look how different it looks, right? You get scattering, it looks redder, and it, um, depending on the atmospheric conditions, and, and the, you know, especially if there's a lot of dust or pollutants, if you've ever flown into LA in particular, oh man, like you can see the smog layer. I mean, it's mm. just gross. Yeah. So you can pick, out, even with your eye, I mean, that's how polluted it is. You can literally with your eye see the chemical compositions of, of LA smog. But anyways, um, so you can get a sense of the uh, change to our star's light as it goes through our atmosphere. And exactly the same thing is occurring um, in, in these alien worlds. What we're looking for in those alien atmospheres is the presence of chemicals that should react together. So if you see um, methane and oxygen, they will chemically react. That's literally what you're doing when you're burning natural gas, you know, in, 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 at a stove. So they do like to react and, and it takes about 20 years for the methane in our Earth's atmosphere to um, essentially all be used up. The fact that it, there is methane means that something is replenishing it and it happens to be cows farting and gas leaks out of um, uh, the, the process of drilling for, for gas and where they don't manage to flare off all of the, the gas, burn it all up. Instead, it, it leaks, which is terrible, by the way. Tremendously potent greenhouse gas, hundreds and hundreds of times more potent than carbon dioxide. This, if you could, we're trying to build a satellite to detect the methane, literally who has emitted how much methane as part of a global uh, initiative um, at Swinburne. And the idea is by being able to find out who's done it, you can then tell them to stop doing it. And by measuring, you actually get value um, or at least assign responsibility for it. And then people do the right thing. Um, when they're told, it's they're being seen from space doing it. So that, that always helps. Because we can see there's methane in our atmosphere and oxygen, aliens doing this, their version of JWST, they would rightly infer that something is replenishing the methane. And they would know that there is a good chance it's either geological, so the breakdown of um, certain types of rocks, or it's life. That is what we're looking for right now. That was, <clears throat> excuse me, this is looking outside, but do you ever wonder about what's going inside that we have, we like have alien visited us? And that's mm -hmm. talking about Bob Lazar or the recent uh, US whistleblower. Did, does that mm -hmm. ever intrigue, interest you? Well, it's always interesting. Um, I think anytime you've got uh, documented uh, sightings and evidence, uh, it's rightly um, now being investigated and, and doing that in as public a, a manner as is, as is possible. Obviously, some of these sightings are based on classified capabilities so that, you know, this is why Pentagon has done its own uh, classified version. We've had the, the public released uh, case. The fact that it's 
discovered nothing that is attributable to aliens. It's not ruled them out, but in the same sense, and I think that's just just appropriate, whether you can't rule out a negative in that sense. Um, all you can do is rule every other possible explanation out and whatever's left, no matter how improbable, goes the, um, the Holmesian quote. But I have seen nothing of those that makes me, you know, suspect aliens visited. And I'm also... And I think that probably makes sense as well, though. I, I, I'm always struck by the kind of internal inconsistency in the in the logic where you are a civilization advanced enough to travel between the stars. And just to understand, our fastest spacecraft at present, Voyager uh, spacecraft, have just left the solar system. It's taken them 40 years at least, maybe 40, 50 years. At that speed, they will reach the closest star in something like 70 to 100,000 years. And that's a tiny spacecraft. So if you imagine a civilization undertaking this and wanting something, you know, more than the golden record attached to the side of it to make that journey, um, that is an enormous undertaking. So something that could make that um, uh, journey would somehow crash land in, in, you know, Utah. I don't know. It just, it's weird to me. It seems like an inconsistent argument. But and anyway. why Utah? <laughs> yeah. Why well, always it? America? I don't know. Why is it always America? America? Yeah. <laughs> um, so look, it, before it was aliens, it was angels, right? The, the, the sightings of angels was gigantic in the US and then the 50s happened and then people switched to aliens. Mm. So here's, an, here's another question. Sorry, Dan. Um, while the Voyager is going into the deep space, how does the time dilation work? Ah, right. So if you go, uh, as you go quicker, and this is Einstein's special relativity, if you go quicker, you um, your internal clock ticks more slowly. And the thought experiment is you have two twins, one blasts off in a rocket at incredible speeds, uh, from Earth and comes back. And they have aged a week and their twin on Earth has aged quite literally decades. We have done this, not with twins, um, but with, with actual accurate clocks. And it's absolutely spot on. This is what happens. So the faster you go, the closer you get to the speed of light, the greater the time dilation, the, the disconnect between your clock at rest before you started this journey and what it now ticks as. Now, this is a, um, a proven um, uh, phenomenon and it's very helpful if you wanted to do uh, interstellar, interstellar travel. You want to go quick because you don't want to be hanging around for 100,000 years, right? So you're going to have to go a lot, lot quicker and you're going to have to go to a good fraction of the speed of light basically, you know, to within 1% of the speed of light and at which point... Not only has the journey to, say, Alpha Centauri taken, um, is it 50,000 years, it's, it's taken you three years. It gets better than that. Because you were going so fast, you literally, your clocks were ticking slower. You're, if I had a telescope looking at you in your spacecraft, you would be moving um, in slow-mo. You were eating less. You're breathing less. The journey time for you that you experienced was less. 
in other words, it's not just about getting to the star in three years. It's that you experienced it as three days or if it was 1%, um, oh no, I have to do an inverse square root. There's no way I'm going to be doing that in my head. Um, it would be probably, oh, I can, I'm just imagining there's at least one person in the audience listening, screaming. Let's just call it, instead of three years, it was three months. That seems reasonable. Um, that's much easier to provision as well. So interstellar travel, if you can go quickly enough, becomes a reasonable, reasonable is carrying a lot of weight on this, reasonable um, kind of journey. The problem is when you come back, everyone's clocks have ticked. So you're you're reporting, you know, you go off into the, um, to experience the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy, um, 24,000 light years from us. You travel at, you know, not just 1% below the speed of light, but say, you know, a millionth below so it's just incredibly, incredibly quickly. Um, it's going to take, it could take you days to get there based on your experience. And then you come on the return journey. It's 50,000 years later for everyone else. There's no civilization that recognizes you anymore. And you certainly don't it, I suspect. Mm -hmm. So the, the interstellar travel is a journey through time as much as it is space. So basically what you're saying, that's time travel. Sort of. We're all traveling through time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one second every second. <clears throat> wow. But you can change that up. But one thing you can't do is go back. Everything is going forward. forward. And there's an interesting, um, quite a deep philosophical um, point around why. So Einstein's theories allow you to move in the three dimensions of space, uh, you know, up, down, back, forward, left, right, trivially, right? You can do that. Uh, there's a unifying concept known as space-time, and, and we move, in fact, in between that four dimensions of space and time. There's nothing really in the rules that say you can't have movement in time, at least in principle. Um, and yet we can. So there's there's clearly an there's clearly a past and a future sure. from our experience. But most of the physical laws are known uh, what's called time-symmetric. In other words... Um, you know, going back and forward in that equation is is as easy. So no one is in the equations telling you how time, the arrow of time, the direction of time, is being experienced by, you know, things like us as well and the universe itself. I mean, it's it, there's clearly the universe looked different in the past than it does today and will look different in the future. That is kind of still an open question. How? Jeez. There's a lot we don't know in physics is what I'm saying. Anyone <laughs> yes. listening to this, lots of cool things to be doing as, as you know, future um, uh, programs of work. There's a lot of foundational things we still have not grappled with because we're too busy making Gen AI, I think. All our best people are sitting trying to make social media more addictive. Jeez. That's you, the thing. If, yes. they, if we did discover aliens, do you think we would care or do you think we'd be like, oh, of course they exist and move on to the next thing? Who's rebranded yeah. Twitter again? No, no, no. no. I, 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 so I, I think, I'm trying to think who I got into an argument with this. It was something ridiculously distinguished and it was embarrassing. I think it might have been an astronaut. But anyways, um, and I had that exact point. They were saying how transformative this would be. And I was thinking, well, people are phenomenal at being able to accommodate the impossible. The We make, you know, the you see this gigantic uh, nuclear explosion, billions of t 
times more powerful than all of the nuclear weapons on Earth, burning each and every second in this quasi-uncontrolled knife-edge kind of point of stability. And you go, ah, nice sunrise. You know, yeah. <laughs> like we're really good at normalizing yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I think where we discover aliens would be there, I hope it would be revelatory. I suspect it would be a huge, the biggest discovery. But I also think the year after yeah. we'd be on to what's next on yeah. social media. It would become our new reality. Yeah, we just normalize things. That's our greatest strength and it's our greatest weakness because we can get used to things as they are and not accept that, or rather we, we are all too accepting of of living with those, you know, slightly less than optimal situations. Um, and that's great, except not when it comes to environmental collapse. You know, we have to, it doesn't have to be this bad. We can um, go back to a more pristine time. But anyways, get, I'll get off the environmental collapse <laughs> thing for this podcast. There's only so much our tiny little brains can Comprehend. handle at a time, you know. That's true. If we discovered aliens, I don't think we'd be able to handle it. It would be like, yeah. That's right. Aliens exist. Moving on. Would it make <laughs> us think about ourselves and how we are portraying or projecting ourselves? I mean, the, the reason I'm asking this is that it's the counterpart to Breakthrough Listen is the Breakthrough Messenger, or, or uh, sorry, Breakthrough Message um, program. And, and in it, um, it's the same, you know, billionaire founded, Breakthrough Listen founded this. And it was to create the message that we were trying to send to the aliens. Right, very, very difficult to send a lot of information across space. You need a huge, you know, uh, radio transmission gear. You're only going to be able to send, you know, like a picture, a few kilobytes, maybe even just a few uh, bytes. Depends where they are. So, you know, we're talking words, not the internet. Mm. Um, and the point was, what would you send them? And it it's quite a reflective moment. What defines us? What are we proud of showing the universe? What would be the distillation of what it means to be? you know, human. And I think we would all agree sending them the internet would not be putting our best selves forward. It wouldn't look well. Wouldn't look great. So, <laughs> so you know, trying to trying to give ourselves the best um, description of ourselves, I, I, I actually think that's quite a worthwhile exercise. It makes you think about what you actually would be proud to tell these aliens. And this is a bit of work that's actually ongoing. Well, would it be art and culture? Would you try? And, Who's art? Yeah. Who's whose culture? If you could, how do you choose? Yeah. If you could write down a message to reach aliens, what what would it say? <laughs> so long, thanks for all the fish. Um, look, uh, what would I say? I'm I'm a uh, uh, not a particularly um, elegant uh, writer. I think I would turn to my philosophical and uh, literary colleagues for this. Um, I think I would personally think that if there are anything like us, the knowledge that, um, that we are not alone in the dark, that there is another beacon of intelligence, um, probably just that we strive would be enough. Um, because as a species, we do. We strive to be better. Uh, we strive to understand more. We strive to be more caring. I mean, the natural state, uh, I'm obviously something of an optimist when it comes to people, but but I, but I, that's been borne out more often than not. And yes, bad things happen, terrible things happen, but, but in my experience, people do strive to be um, 
to better themselves, to help their neighbors, to make sense of this world they find themselves in. So yeah, we strive. And I hope that that would give solace to the aliens. That's a very big message, Ren. <laughs> well, hopefully it's only two, you know, two, two words, so Limited very character. small signal strength. <laughs> Just yeah, a tweet. Needed. Yeah, that's right. Um, with your understanding of the universe, um, how, how has that influenced your philosoph uh, philosophy on, the, on life, actually? Mm. Um, it really came in... Um, in a huge way during COVID, actually. So, um, not sure what your you know breakdown is, but for I suspect a fair number of listeners are, are based perhaps in Melbourne, um, and the experience of you know the five k bubble radius, yeah, yeah um, that was for someone who you know I love to to get out to to meet people. I'm incredibly extroverted. Um, yeah, that was nightmarish, um, but. Looking down, that was my 5K, right? I had a 5K present, but I could always look up. And so for me, the ability every night, I would look up and I would just allow my mind to relax into that direction and not have that 5K radius, but, you know, now five, um, you know, five trillion kilometers or 50 trillion kilometers to the nearest star in this instance, you know, try as best as I could to remember that this is not the boundary, but up there is mm. actually a, a more apt description of, you know, how big your world is. You're not that yeah. confined. Um, and I was almost meditative. It became something far more than a scientific kind of, you know, challenge to myself. It was it was deeply meditative. I love that. I did something similar, not during COVID, but I was on my hammock in the backyard one day and looked up and saw a plane flying overhead and thought, man, there's lots of people on that plane and then mm -hmm. look beyond that and thought, oh, it's a whole universe out there. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of realise how tiny your your world is mm -hmm. and you're just one of billions of people that will live and die. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. You felt like... <laughs> <laughs> this is gone. I, I want, I'll be fascinated to know if anyone is enjoying this experience or have just been so demoralised, so depressed listening to book. They're just cleaning dishes right now going... <laughs> Man, I just want something mildly better than cleaning dishes to listen to. And just yeah. Well, we're running out of time, so I just had um, quick questions. Mm. But something like that happened to me as well then. I was, I think, I was at Great Ocean Road. And I could be wrong, but I was certain that it wasn't a plane. It was a satellite that I saw because mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was moving at very smooth pace. Yep. And then I realized, like, holy shit, I just saw a satellite with naked eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was a very, that was a moment that I felt big yet so small. Yeah, you were probably even seeing this, the um, International Space Station. It's it's clearly visible. I could see it yeah, yeah, yeah. moving very smoothly. It yeah. wasn't a plane because planes blink and, yep. you could, and the light is much bigger. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, at, at, at night, I mean, just, just so long as there's not clouds, I mean, you can see this very clearly in the city. That's how bright it is. Uh, traveling so um there's a little is it's called the iss spotter app so you can actually just download it and it'll tell you when the iss is going to pass overhead and be visible in particular um that's i mean i think those moments really matter it really helps to have that reminder that connection to look up uh i've i've only ever once met someone who who didn't 
I was about to say, no, you know, everyone, you know, it's, it's kind of a universal truth, but it's not. There was one person at uni who was a deeply intelligent, very successful uh, friend. And she said about my work, oh, you know, uh, why do you do it? Why do you, why are you studying astronomy? Why do you do astronomy? And I said, well, well, you know, I'm just fascinated about, you know, the night sky. And she said, why? And I said, well, you know, there's the stars and understanding what they are. There's the dark matter, the mystery of, you know, how we became, you know, like literally as I look out, it's it's fully half of my worldview. It's up there as much as it down here. I said, so why does that matter? And I just realized there's eventually a series of whys that you will get to that it becomes foundational. And you think, because it's ha half of what I can see and how could I be not wanting to understand that. It's not that I don't care about what's down here, but I'm very equally interested about it up there. And it was this moment of just absolute inability for my, for our minds to connect on this point. And it's something that shook me to my core. And I, it took me, well, I think I still obviously am not over it. It's like 15 years ago. Um, because it is so common for people to be fascinated by the, um, the sky above because I think it is a reminder that the world is so extraordinary that we are hanging to the edge of a ball of dirt as it goes around a thermonuclear explosion that we call the sun. And this idea of our place in this universe is, is challenged. I mean, the scale challenges us to understand, to, to make sense of that, to find our place in something as vast and very much uncaring as this universe. Well, I mean, that's why we have neighbors, right? I mean, and we have other interests. So I think that that's, it's always helpful to have that um, framing that the world is so beautiful and vast. Um, the universe goes on even more, but that your role today is special, uniquely so, that it would, you would have to travel 10 and all of those billions and billions, billions of light years to sheer, by sheer chance, come across someone else like yourself. So in other words, you are a special person um, because you are here. And that really can be enough some days. I don't think people realize that. If they're listening Every to this day. great podcast, they <laughs> yes. are. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Do you think uh, we're far off from being a space-faring race? Um, no, I think we're we're getting very close. I'm very excited. India just uh, at this time of recording just landed the Chandrayaan-3 uh, mission close to the South Pole where the ice water is and hopefully they will demonstrate just at least the first understanding of how much is there. Uh, the NASA mission is is soon to come where we'll see the first woman and person of color walk on the moon and they will actually be doing experiments with that water ice. And that matters because um, the water ice can be broken into hydrogen and oxygen. That's the components. That's literal rocket fuel. So now, if you can go to the moon and you can mine it, you can uh, drink that water. So it's a resupply for astronauts, but it's also a refueling station for further exploration. And the point why it matters that it's there is by the time you take, you know, this, this bottle of water we have in front of us, if you, by the time you take this bottle of water against the enormous gravity of Earth and all of the fuel that you have to burn to lift it up to the moon, it is now worth its weight in gold. You spend a lot of money taking things off world. So now if you can get it from the moon, essentially for free, well, then that changes the economics. And now suddenly you're, you're unchained, untethered from 
the planet. You can start to have an off-world economy and industrialization and you get the expanse basically yeah as a as a tv show and probably very likely all of the horrifying politics that come with it but i think that that point of us being truly becoming a an um interplanetary in the sense of we will travel more easily between planets um but i don't think in my lifetime i'll be seeing colonies on mars sadly um but the idea at least of people having a permanent presence on the moon that we are actively, routinely going up there to work. Uh, we will, in Australia, be very critically involved in the mining of the resources of the moon. And Swinburne has a number of programs on that, as well as the, um, led by Jeff Brooks, how you take the lunar regolith, the dirt of the moon, and, and um, uh, um, heat it, or, or using electricity, access the metals of the moon. So now you begin to build on the moon from the materials there, again, drastically reducing the costs, next generation of satellites and everything else that can come from that. All of those things are being done now. The missions are happening now to mine it. The research is being undertaken now to process those mined materials into new products. We, If we continue this path within this 15, 20-year horizon, we will have bases on the moon. We will have the ability to use its resources to further grow and sustain that presence, having ever less of an impact on Earth because we're accessing you know, off-world resources. We're also, at Swinburne, by the way, doing uh, work on responsible AI in space, responsible practices, mining, recycling of the lunar materials. So in other words, putting our best selves forward as we travel off earth and not making the mistakes of the past we have a clean slate why would you litter the moon right but that is literally the mission concepts they're one shots or they uh, or even if they're repeat visits there you know there's nothing about the materials people are choosing that is making it you know planning for recyclability well that's what we're doing we want to make sure we don't have a um uh that we don't destroy the moon because of what we decide to do now, that we can avoid the issues or, or mistakes of the past here on Earth by putting our best technological as well as, um, I think, uh, um, almost human cells forward. In other words, you know, we, we go in a spirit of collaboration um, with responsible uh, uh, stakeholders, recognizing that the moon in particular is the um, is owned by all peoples and in particular indigenous groups have tremendous connections to the moon, enduring and very relevant today connections. And were the moon's face to be scarred by the dust that you kick up as you mine, which is very much on the cards, right? This is the technological path we will go down unless we try to avoid it actively try to avoid it and we get the incentives right we might be doing tremendous cultural um damage so you know i think it's important that we learn particularly australia learns to have a more responsible presence on the moon and we don't get it right in australia it's fair to say as a, as a resources sector but it has learned and it continues to learn and I am optimistic that on the moon, 
we will see the best of what we could do on earth done there. And I hope that inspires us to do that back here. So hopefully politics That's beautiful. don't get in the way. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, why would politics ever come in? I mean, the fact there's a Chinese base going up there, there's a US Artemis. No, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. You seem for I all could just imagine for all humankind, I've seen the right? expanse, yeah. so, uh, you know, it's very glum be future. Hard. It'll be hard, but. Uh, well, two quick questions before we wrap this up. If you were to compose a. Well, if, if you were to pick a song or a piece of music for the cosmos, what would it be? Um, oof. Um, I mean, you've always got Holst the Planets Rider, basically the, you know, 2001. Um, what would I have? I'd probably have something by the roots. I just think you're just going to want to listen to something great. <laughs> I would say I think interstellar music, the movie music, mm. would be the best. Well, look, okay, taking it seriously then. Um, <laughs> I do love the roots, by the way. Um, the... Yeah, the Zimmer, you know, Hans Zimmer is is um it was Hans Zimmer composed Interstellar or is that the one oh, he I think avoided? it was Hans Zimmer. It, it was Hans yeah, Zimmer for yeah. that, yeah. Um so look, I think that the um it is it is staggeringly beautiful, as in, you know, genuinely tears uh, listening uh, to that soundtrack. Um I wonder though, I think the there was a, a beautiful concept, and it, we referenced it earlier. It's called called the um, the Golden Record, and it's well worth maybe spending it just a, a minute on. And this was um, Sagan, Carl Sagan, understood the potential connection that could come as people imagined what Voyager and the other uh, now interstellar probes. So they would eventually leave the solar system. They were on one way travels via the outer world and eventually would would make it um, outside our solar system. And that concept of what would you take to represent humanity? And it's of the time, it's vinyl, right? So they get a vinyl record, um, gold-plated, so that it can last in the harsh environments of space. And on that, they have the sounds of the world. And there are two indigenous songs that are recorded, that are captured, that are now have left the solar system. There's a rich variety of cultures represented. There are um, hellos being said in various languages. There are, you know, a very crude kind of drawing of, you know, human and, and um, sort of human, you know, man, woman stick figures. And, you know, here's our location relative to the nearest kind of interstellar beacons, which are known as pulsars. And, you know, there's this wonderful concept of what you would... Um, try to capture and convey. And Sagan, I think in his brilliance, by opening up, intentionally wanting the diversity, understood that the importance was the diversity. Right. It was the fact that as much of humanity was represented on that disc in however small ways, that was the point. That was the best thing we could hear was as much of us saying hello in our language, as much of us saying in our deepest enduring songs, he got it right. I think it did. Absolutely it did. Well, <clears throat> here's the last one. What's a lesser known phenomenon that you find uttering captivating and you wish more people knew about it? A lesser known phenomenon. I, I added that as a <laughs> lesser known. <laughs> <laughs> lesser known phenomenon. Hmm. I 
hopefully you'll be editing this long Space. pause out. Um, <laughs> that's no phenomenon. Oh my goodness. There's so many things. I mean, um, well, this is, this, uh, um, I don't know about lesser known. Um, you have a phenomenon called a 22 degree. 22 degree. 22 degree um, sun halo. And it's, um, I hope I've got it right. I hope it's not 23 degrees. <laughs> I think about it anyways. Um, this, is, this is a phenomenon that um, you have a uh, the sun shining through, usually um, if it's, um, you've got very, very high altitude clouds. But anyways, you get, the sun shines at you and you get a perfect ring of sunlight around it. And you'll see this a few times in your life. And it's one of those phenomena that I suspect most people will go, will look at it, go, what, what the, and then forget about it. Or maybe they'll tell a friend and they'll be like, you probably want to go to an optometrist or something. That sounds weird. Really that clear, right? You have the sun and you have, or the moon even, you can even get yes, it in the moonlight. I've seen that oh, you've seen so it in the moonlight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it so many yeah. times. So you get that halo, that, that yes. ring. Um, and it's what is happening is, is the light is traveling through um, very, very fine, um, ice crystals at the highest altitudes of our of our atmosphere and it is bouncing inside and it is coming out on the along essentially the face and the angle that those crystals they all grow in is this degree 20, 20. so we're seeing this this degree you are literally seeing the angular extent of microscopic ice crystals about 20 30 kilometers above your head i think at least so this and everyone's like we'll probably if they do notice at all, we'll assume that something's wrong with their vision. But this is what they're seeing. And it's that's one of my favorite lesser known, lesser known science and phenomena. I, I saw it and I shared it with all of my friends. We, we were there just doing a barbecue and we saw it. It was a massive ring, yeah, just yeah, yeah. perfect ring. It's so around. clear, right? It's so clear. You can yeah. see it. You wouldn't, it's not, it doesn't stand out. What will, again, you have to look up. Yeah, yeah. But, but when someone points it out, you yeah, it's yeah. unequivocal it's, that that's what yes, you're seeing. You yeah, see yeah. It's like, holy shit. It's like, man, amazing. But, Wrapping this podcast up, um, thank you so much for doing this. You oh, my pleasure. It's been a fascinating. Fascinating journey. Well, I think this was a time travel because I didn't realize we've, we've been oh, one and a half hours. So thank you so much for staying. <laughs> uh, this was so quick, but uh, we appreciate you for what you've uh, done. And um, we hope you all the best. Please tell our listeners where they can find you and more of your work. Uh, so, look, you can find me on... Um, on the socials, it's Astro Duff on that hellscape that is X. <laughs> just sounds <laughs> a gross saying it. Um, or Prof Alan Duffy on on uh, Insta. But look, I have very little plug. I would say uh, going to find your local astronomical society. If anything I've shared about astronomy is of interest, find them. If the more general physics and um, you know, biology and, and, and philosophical concepts are of interest, go to the Royal Institution of Australia. I was uh, the lead scientist for several years. Wonderful community where they put together the latest discoveries, the best explainers. Uh, a lot of that content is free. Um, head to the Royal Institution of Australia and get your mind blown. And thank you so much thank again. You. I just want to also say that 
I'm a big fan of you because you're an excellent communicator. And every time you talk about physics, you smile, which is which shows <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you're so deeply passionate about yeah. what you do. And and I think I look up to that. So again, thank you so much. Well, you got me smiling now. Thank yes, you. sir. Thank you. <laughs> thank Bye, you. everybody.